If you would please open your Bibles again to Paul's epistle to the Romans, chapter 6. Romans is all about the gospel of God. It's an important thing for us to learn about as a church, the gospel of God. For our very mission as a church depends upon the gospel of God. We exist to make disciples of Jesus Christ who glorify God as the grace of the gospel grows deep in God's people and goes wide to all peoples. The gospel is critical to making disciples. For as Paul says at the very beginning of his letter, the gospel is the power of God for salvation for all who believe. So it's so important that we get the gospel right. But here's the thing that I want to begin with this morning. It's really easy to get it wrong. It's really easy to get it wrong. When it comes to the gospel, there are two broad ditches that are easy to fall into. You've heard us talk about them before, most of you. Some of you maybe haven't. Here are the ditches. The first ditch is legalism. The second ditch is license. Paul knows is he is writing this letter about the gospel of God that both ditches are very dangerous. And so he deals with both of them to keep us on the gospel road. In the first part of his letter, which we have covered thus far in our study of Romans, he has dealt very adequately with the ditch of legalism. Legalism in the most simple of terms is a belief, a false view that says in order to earn God's favor, we have to do good works. It's our good works that make us right with God. And Paul says that is the ditch of legalism. It's not true. In fact, we could never do enough good works to earn God's favor for we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And in our sin, we don't have God's favor. We are under the wrath of God. That's the bad news. But the good news, the gospel road, teaches us that God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Not legalism, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, beginning in chapter 6, Paul begins to deal with the second ditch, the ditch of license. The ditch of license or licentiousness is the view that how we live really doesn't matter. I mean, after all, God has shown us so much grace. He forgives all of our sins. How we live doesn't matter. It's okay to continue to live under sin. We see this question teed up at the very first verse of chapter 6. Paul is drawing on what Stephen uh, taught us so well last week at the end of chapter 5, where we read that where, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So sin increased, 
as we became aware of our sin through the law, and grace abounded all the more. This leads Paul to a question at the beginning of chapter 6. What then shall we say? Are we to continue in sin in order that grace may abound? In other words, if grace is so great, if it's so abundant, then does it really matter how I live my life? Can't I just continue to live my life in sin? And Paul's answer is a resounding no, by no means. So we don't earn God's favor through our good works. It's only through grace. But grace does not give us a license to continue to live a life of sin. But why? Why? As we read this passage together, we're going to get the answer to that question, why? But as we read, I want you to notice something. Paul doesn't simply say, stop it. Stop sinning. Grace doesn't give you license to sin. That's not the way he builds his argument. His argument for not continuing to sin is grounded in really good reasons. And those reasons have everything to do with who you are in Christ. They're bound up in our identity with Christ. And our identity, who we are in Christ, is the thing that motivates us to live our life for God and to not continue in sin. So listen for that as we read chapter 6, verses 1 to 14. Would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we, who died to sin, still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him and a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. 
for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. This is a dense chapter. I have wrestled with its organization all week. It has a unique organization, complicated in a sense, and yet the more I look at it, the plainer it became to me. This is how I see it. Paul gives his main thesis in answer to this question, shall we continue to sin? He gives his main thesis in verses 1 to 5. But then to drive his main point, his main thesis home, he expands on it in verses 6 to 14 and makes two moves, two moves. So the main thesis and then an elaboration or an expansion of that thesis in two moves. So if you're a math person, it's one plus two. We're going to have three points today. But like I said, the first point is the main foundational one. The others will reiterate, elaborate, and drive that home. So the main thesis, verses 1 to 5, teaches us that we can't live in sin because we're united with Christ. So the answer to the question, shall we continue in sin? It's no. We can't continue to live our lives in sin. Why? Because we've been united with Christ. So notice the way I just said that. Because it's the way the whole passage is organized. The main thesis here as well as the elaboration of it. There is this dance in this chapter, in this section, between truths and commands. Truths and commands. There are things that are true about us if we are in Christ. And then there are commands or implications for how we are to live our lives as a result of being in Christ. So the command is what starts this section. It's actually an implied command. It's not explicit. Paul begins with the question in verse 1. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And beginning in verse 2, he says, no, by no means. That's an implied command. An implied command. We're not to continue in sin. But the truth that gives ground to this implied command is expressed most clearly in verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So do you see, the reason we can't continue to live in sin is because if we are Christians... We have been united with Christ. We are united in his death and his resurrection. Our union with Christ tells us who we are. It communicates our identity. And the way we think about our identity in Christ is critical for the way that we live our lives as Christians. Jordan Green talks about identity in a way that has been very helpful for me, and I trust it will be helpful for you as well. Jordan Green says that our identity is the story 
we tell ourselves about ourselves. The story we communicate to ourselves, that we speak to ourselves about ourselves. Paul says that if you are in Christ, if you have been united with him, then his story is now your story. His story is the story that you need to tell yourself about yourself. You no longer identify as a Christian generically, identify with Christ generally, but you are to specifically identify with Christ in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. When he died, Paul teaches us, you died with him. That's your story. When he was buried, you were buried with him. That's your story. And even as he is raised, you will one day be raised together with him. That is your story. It is what's true about you. If we are in him, we have new life. We have a new identity, an identity that is bound up in Christ, in our union with Christ. And that identity is what is to motivate the way we live. It is the main reason why you can't continue to live your life under the thumb of sin. That's not who you are anymore. And Paul says, if you want to get a picture of what is true about you, the most fundamentally true thing about you as a Christian, then what you need to do is you need to remember your baptism. Your baptism is the thing that most clearly points to your new identity with Christ in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Look again at verse 4. Paul says, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. So, our union with Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection, Paul says, was by baptism into death. Is he saying that our baptism is the thing that united us with Christ? I don't think so. If he were saying that, he would be contradicting everything else he has already said in his letter. That we are saved through faith. Not a work of baptism, but through faith alone, in Christ alone, in what he has done. So why does Paul use this language of being baptized into his death or um, being buried, therefore, with him by baptism into his death. Some would say that it's speaking of the moment that we were baptized in the Spirit. And I think that's a valid way to read that, but I don't think that's what it's talking about. I think it's talking about water baptism. Why do I think that? Well, you need to remember that the way things were in the early church are not quite the way that they are today. Right, wrong, or indifferent. In that day, there was no such thing as an unbaptized Christian. 
We didn't make these massive separations between when a person came to saving faith in Christ and when they were baptized. Like I said, right, wrong, or indifferent, all of Paul's readers would have known that an unbaptized Christian was a contradiction in terms. The whole of conversion contained a number of elements. We place our faith in Christ. We are born again. We are united with Christ. We are baptized. And for many, that last part, baptism, came to stand for the whole. It became a way of talking about our entire conversion. And so I, along with a number of scholars, think that when Paul says that we were buried with him by baptism, he's referring to the whole of conversion. The moment that we move from death into life, the moment that we were united with Christ can be represented in baptism. And so that's why he says we were buried with him by baptism into death. That's one of the reasons. But why does he use this language? I think the more, I mean, the more prominent reason is this, and this is what I want you to take home. Our union with Christ is linked with baptism because baptism so clearly communicates the reality of our union with Christ. It communicates our union with his death through immersion into the water. It communicates our union with his burial through submersion under the water. It communicates our union with his resurrection through immersion from the water. The death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ are central to the gospel. They are of first importance, but they're also critical to your identity as a Christian. We died with him. We will be raised with him. Your baptism, if I can put it this way. It is the picture book story of your story. It's not a dense book that's complicated. It's a really simple book with pictures and illustrations that you can flip through and see. Your story is communicated through baptism. This should be the story that you tell yourself about yourself. When? All of the time. But think about when you are about to veer into the ditch of legalism. Remember your baptism. It represents that Christ died and that he rose again from the dead because you couldn't do good enough. He had to do it for you. Or what about when you are tempted to veer into the ditch of license? Remember your baptism. You are united with Christ. He is your life. He is your identity. Live in a manner worthy of your baptism. Live in a manner worthy of the gospel which is communicated in your baptism. Paul's main thesis, we can't continue to live in sin. Because we are united with Christ. That's our story. The story we need to tell ourselves about ourselves. 
the verses that follow, he's simply elaborating on this thesis. What does it mean that we died with Christ? He'll elaborate on that in verses 6 to 7. What does it mean that we are raised with Christ? He'll elaborate on that on verses 8 to 10. Those truths of our union with Christ. And then he'll elaborate on the commands of how we are to live our lives. In verse 12, a command that's tethered to the truth that we died to sin. In verse 13, a command that's tethered to the truth that we are alive to God. It sounds a little complicated, but to make it simple, for the rest of our time, I've simply combined these two truths and the two commands into two additional points that elaborate, that unpack further the significance that we have died with him, that we will be raised with him. So let's look first at our union with Christ's death. Here's the point. We're dead to sin, so we shouldn't serve sin. We're dead to sin, so we shouldn't serve sin. What does Paul mean when he says we are dead to sin? When we think of sin, we often think of sinful acts that we commit. But sin is not simply an action. Sin is a power that enslaves us. We talked about this back in chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 9, Paul says, For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. He doesn't say that all Jews and Greeks commit sin. That's true. We've all fall short of the glory of God. But he says they're all under sin. This is language that speaks of slavery. The work of Christ on the cross, as we've been celebrating over the last number of weeks, certainly pays the penalty for our sins. Amen? But what Paul wants us to see here is that the cross of Christ not only pays the penalty of our sin, it breaks the power of sin in our lives. That's what Paul means in verse 1 when he says we have died to sin. Or in verse 11 when he says you must consider yourself dead to sin. Sin no longer is your master. How do I know that's what he's saying? Let's look at verses 6 and 7 again. I think you will hear it, see it clearly. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died, here it is as clear as can be, has been set free from sin. Now, that doesn't mean that we no longer sin, does it? Does it mean that for you? Are there any of us here, Christian or unchristian, that are living a perfect life? No. That's not the argument that Paul is making. He's not saying we shouldn't continue in sin, meaning that you'll never sin again. That's not what he's saying. We will still continue to sin, but we no longer continue to live under the enslaving power of sin. Sin, let me put it this way, has not been completely eradicated 
in our lives. But we have been emancipated from the enslaving power of sin. Maybe a couple of illustrations will help you to get a picture of what Paul is saying here. A friend of mine says sin is like an opponent in a wrestling match. That's right. You can think Nacho Libre if you like. Before we came to saving faith in Christ, sin had us pinned to the mat. We couldn't get up. It had such a grip upon us that everything that we did was shot through with sin to one degree or another. We were powerless to not sin. Even our good deeds were mixed with sinful motives. But now Christ has set us free. Sin is still in the ring. So that's the way you experience your life if you're a Christian. Sin is still in the ring. It's still trying to trip you up. It's still trying to throw you up against the ropes. But the truth that we learn in this passage is that sin can never pin you down again. We're free. We're no longer enslaved. Or think of it this way. Before we came to saving faith in Jesus Christ, before we were united to Christ, sin was in the driver's seat of our lives. Our old self was a body of sin. And so all that we did was controlled by sin. Sin was taking us down dark alleys. Sin was taking us down dangerous avenues. It was using our bodies to do all kinds of repulsive things. We were controlled by sin in our minds. Our tongues were controlled by sin. Our feet marched to sin's orders. Our hands did sin's dirty deeds. Sin was in the driver's seat. But now, the old self has been crucified. It has been taken out of the driver's seat. But this is the way we experience it. It's still in the back seat. It's still telling us which way to go. It's still trying to take us down those dark alleys and those dangerous avenues. But friends, sin is no longer in the driver's seat and you don't have to listen to that back seat driver anymore. That's what Paul tells us in verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. You don't have to listen to the directions it's telling you to go. You're dead to sin. Sin no longer masters you and so you therefore should no longer serve that old slave master. But the question that is probably on your mind is who is in the driver's seat now? Who's driving the car of our lives? And the answer to that is really exciting, but somewhat complicated. And it leads me to our next point. We are alive to God, so we should live for God. 
like I said, verses 8 to 10 are more complicated, at least in my mind, than what we've covered so far. But the point, I think, emerges clearly, if you will hang with me, that we are now alive to God, so we should now live for God. Paul moves here from his elaboration on our union with Christ's death, now into an elaboration on our union with Christ's resurrection. And the reason this point is complicated is because our union with Christ's resurrection is something that is still in the future. Look at verse 8. You see this. If we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. Very similar to what he says earlier at the conclusion of his main thesis in verse 5. If we have been united with him in a death like his, we certainly shall be united with him in a resurrection like his. So our death to sin has already taken place. Our resurrection has not yet taken place. But because Christ's resurrection has already taken place, we can have confidence that we one day will be raised together with Him. Remember the story that you are to tell yourself. Think about it this way. You have the bookends of your story firmly fixed. You have died with Christ and you will be raised with Him. You know how your story began in Christ and therefore you know how your story will end. And that motivates you, liberates you to live your life now in that story of Christ. But do you do so on your own strength? No. This passage is not only teaching us what happened in the past is sure and what will happen in the future is sure. It is also teaching us that we have something now that enables us to live our lives for God. We have to wait for the resurrection life, but we don't have to wait for new life. We have new life now. And this is the mysterious truth. Somehow, when Christ was raised from the dead, that future age that we are waiting for, in some part, has broken in to the present age. Look at verse 4. He says, We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, notice he doesn't say, we will be raised. He says that elsewhere. He says instead, we too might walk in the newness of life. That's speaking of life right now. We have new life right now. So we can walk in the newness of that life right now. Verse 11 says something similar. You must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. If we are in Christ... We have the Spirit of God. We are alive to God right now. The age to come has broken in to this present age. And that new life is what enables us to live our lives for God. And it is a new life that is again grounded in our union with Christ. Grounded in our union with Christ. Notice what verses 9 to 10 say. 
The logic is complicated, but hopefully you'll get it. Hopefully I get it. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Amen? Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So Christ was dead. He was raised. He defeated death. It no longer reigns. His death was once and for all. Praise God. The cross accomplished what it said it would accomplish. The resurrection of ours in the future is certain because of Christ's resurrection. But not only that, not only that, we are told that now Christ lives to God. Here's the logic. If we are in Christ, which Paul says that we are, we too now live to God. That's what Paul says as a summary statement in verse 11. We're dead to sin, but we are alive to God in Christ Jesus. We still struggle with sin, but we have new life in Christ. We're no longer enslaved to sin. It's no longer in the driver's seat. I've already said that. But verses 8 to 10 tell us more. They tell us who's in the driver's seat now. It's the new you who are in Christ. The new life that is in Christ. Or maybe to make this as simple as I can, let me use the language of a verse that many of you are familiar with. Who's in the driver's seat now? This is what Paul says. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, the old me, the old self, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Or maybe the words of 2 Corinthians 5.17, where Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, there's our union with Christ language. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. If you're in Christ, the old has passed away. That means it's dead You are no longer enslaved by sin, no longer mastered by sin. Sure, you are still tempted by sin. And all of us, even the most godly of those of you in this room, will still from time to time listen to that nasty voice from the backseat driver. You will give in. And you will go down dark alleys and dangerous avenues. But you need to know the truth that even when that happens, sin is no longer in the driver's seat. The new you, Christ in you, is now at the wheel. That's what enables you to live your life to God. It's no longer the old self that lives, but Christ in you. Before Christ, you had no power. You had no power to do anything good that wasn't shot through with sin. But now that you are in Christ, you will still sin. But God has enabled you to live your life in a manner that is pleasing to Him in His sight. Friends, 
You need to know the true story about your life. You need to consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God and Jesus Christ. That is the truth. But Paul doesn't stop with what is true. He also tells us what we are to do. In verse 13, he says, Don't present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Now, when he talks about your members, he's talking about your body, but I think he's not simply talking about your arms, your legs, your lips, your hands, although all of that applies. I think what he's trying to say is that all of your faculties, all of your capacities, all of your gifts, all of your talents, your temperament, your personality, all of that, Everything about you should not be used to serve sin anymore. You're no longer a slave to sin. You're now living a new life. So now everything that you have, all of those capacities, all of those propensities, all of those gifts should be used to serve God. Again, to use a more familiar verse, to make this more plain. I think it's simply a way of saying, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your strength. Use what God has given you now to serve Him, not to serve sin. And what's the reason for His command? Again, it's grounded in who you are in Christ. Paul concludes it all in verse 14. Notice the tense of the verbs. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. We've already established that you're no longer mastered by sin, but we all know that we still sometimes submit to that master. But here he is pointing forward to a day in the future when you will be raised with Christ, when you will be glorified with Christ, where sin will exercise absolutely no power over you whatsoever. In your raised resurrection body, it will be completely animated by the Holy Spirit. The flesh will have no say in what you do. Do you look forward to that day? I sure do. But friends, the reason we can have confidence that that day is coming is because of something that is true today. You now are under the reign of grace. Grace reigns because you have been united with Christ. Friends, we live between the already and the not yet. We have already died with Christ but we've not yet been raised with him. We have already been justified, but we have not yet been fully glorified. And so there's a tension in our lives. We struggle with sin, but we should want to be sanctified now, not to earn God's favor. That's legalism. We already have God's favor. But the other reason we should want to be sanctified now is because of who we are. 
We are in Christ. We have died with Him. We will be raised with Him. We are dead to sin. We are alive to God. My main take home for you today is if you are in Christ, I urge you to consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God. Not to play make-believe. These things are true. They are your story if you are in Christ. Paul is calling you to consider this your story and then to live in to this your story. Let's pray. Father, it's easy to listen to lies. But we need your spirit to help us listen to the truth. The true story about who we are if we are in Christ. Speak to our hearts. Remind us of who we are. And then motivate us to live our lives to you. For you. Because of who we are in your son. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.